0: Bible and we'll turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to complete chapter 19 and we'll get deep into chapter 20. That's Luke chapter 19 and also Luke chapter 20. Now when you get there, let me remind you that Jesus has just arrived in (coughs) Jerusalem. His disciples have proclaimed Hosanna and hailed him as the king. The Pharisees have rejected that title for Jesus. They tell him to keep his uh, disciples quiet. He will not do that. He says if they keep quiet, the stones would have to raise up and praise the Lord. And then uh, the next scene is Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because they reject him as the Messiah. They reject God's plan for their nation. And he basically pronounces judgment. He says uh, Jerusalem will fall. The temple will be destroyed. And we know that's going to happen in 70 A.D. So Jesus makes a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled within 40 years. So now we pick up at verse 45. This will be Luke 19 and verse 45. Then he went into the temple, and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. Now the reason this passage is so hard to (coughs) deal with is because we're so familiar with it. And because we're familiar with it, our tradition has gotten in the way of what this passage actually means. So what I want to do is I want to take a fresh look at this this morning, and I want you to notice a couple things. The first thing I want to say at this point is in Luke's Gospel, this is the first time Jesus is in the temple since he's 12 years of age. I think about that. The first time in 12 years of age we find him sitting and teaching the elders of the temple. And he says, I must be about my father's business. Now, he comes back 2 decades later. And he finds them selling merchandise and exchanging currency here in the temple. And uh, the temple's changed. Have you ever been to a place where, as an adult, you go to a place as an adult that you'd been 20 years ago as a child, and it was so, you were thrilled with it when you were a kid, but you come back and, the whole, and you say to this person, Can't wait till we get there, man, I remember how this place was. And then you get there, and guess what? Things have changed, and you're totally disappointed. So Jesus comes back two decades later in Luke's gospel, and things have changed. They're not the same. Now, how have they changed? Well, look what he says in verse 46. He uses two phrases there. My father's house, or my house, is a house of prayer. And then the second, but, so we're going to have a contrast here. He's putting this first phrase, house of prayer, up against the second phrase, but you have made it a den of thieves. My house. Is a house of prayer. But my house, my, my, my house is a house of prayer. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now notice when he uses those two phrases in verse 46, he says it is written. So he's quoting from the Old Testament. And the first, my house is a house of prayer comes from Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. We don't have to turn there, but that simply says that the temple was to be a place where people came and they prayed and they met God. It's basically, it's a place where God is, uh, God's presence is and you meet God. He speaks to you. It's a rev- place of revelation. And you speak to God. Uh, in Mark's gospel, he says... It is to be, my house is a house of prayer for all people. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. Uh, The all people means even Gentiles could go into the temple. Many Gentiles became, put their faith in the one true and living God. And they were converted to Judaism. And the temple had a certain court where Gentiles could go in and worship God. It was the only portion of the temple where Gentiles could actually go in and pray. And... uh, what they've done is they've taken that court and they've trans opposed it, they've transformed it into a place of merchandise. And so he says, you've made it a, a den of thieves. Now that second phrase, den of thieves, comes from Jeremiah. And uh, I want to turn over there to Jeremiah, and I want you to see something. Did I say Jeremiah? <laughs> <laughs> turn over to Jeremiah chapter 7. You find Isaiah, you just keep on moving. You find Jeremiah chapter 7. And this is a quote from Jeremiah. So he's actually putting two quotes together one from Isaiah and one from Jeremiah. And this is very interesting because Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah says this The word of the Lord, the scripture says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Now here's what God says through Jeremiah. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, so there's the temple, and proclaim there this word, and say, hear the word of the Lord. See, that's what God's house is supposed to be, a place where you meet God, where God speaks to you, you speak to him. Hear the word of the Lord. All you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your doings. And I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words saying, The temple of the Lord! The temple of the Lord! The temple of the Lord are these! For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor... If you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, that would be an orphan, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave your fathers. For how long? Forever and ever. But look what he says. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name? See? And say, We are delivered. This is very important. We are delivered to do all these abominations as this house which is called by my name, become a what? Den of thieves in your eyes. Behold, I even I have seen it, says the Lord. Now look down at verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field, on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn, and it will not be quenched. Now, what's happened is he uses in (coughs) Jeremiah chapter 7 the concept den of thieves. Now, what's happening here? They're saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They're always going to the temple. He says, but that won't do you any good. Because what you do in your daily life is you don't take care of the widows, you don't take care of the orphans, you don't have honest scales, you don't deal with people properly. And then, after doing all those things, what you do is you, what you should be punished for and actually be put to death for. Then what you do is you run into the temple and think you'll be protected because you found a sanctuary in the temple. Now, notice that he calls the temple in here a den of thieves. Now, what is a den? Think what a den is. You ever seen the old cowboy movies? You know, there's the bad guy, and then he's got his gang, and after he robs a bank, you know what he does? He goes back to his hideout. And there's where the den of thieves is. That's where the posse can't get it. Oftentimes, it's right over the border. He takes sanctuary. We even have that concept of sanctuary today, don't we? Certain people can run. I don't know if you can still run into it. It used to be you could run into a Catholic church. (laughs) No one could come in and get you. Uh, You could do a bad thing and then run into the Catholic church and the priest would protect you. Because you had sanctuary. You ran into the sanctuary. What Jesus is saying is that you're living like the devil. and then you're running into the temple and you're turning it into a sanctuary, a den of thieves, where you think you'll be protected. And that's not going to happen to you. Jesus says that he's going to pronounce a judgment. Now what happened in Jeremiah's day when they did this? What did God say he would do? He was going to judge him, wasn't he? And you know what happened? Sure enough, the Babylonians swept in, and Jerusalem was destroyed, and the nation went into what's called Babylonian captivity because they made the temple into a den of thieves. And now in Jesus' generation, guess what they're doing? The exact same thing. He says, this should be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. And guess what? You will be judged. Now, it's only against that background that you can understand what's happening here in the temple. So go back to to Luke's Gospel. And uh, what's happening is that Jesus is basically saying, uh, the temple's going to be, the city's going to be judged, the people are going to be judged, the temple's going to be destroyed. And I think when he goes in and he cleans out the temple, that's the first step in the judgment. He's actually doing the, he's actually, it's sort of like an enacted parable, where he's going in and says, this is what's going to happen to the temple, and he just cleans it up, and that's what God's going to do, and eventually the temple will be destroyed. Now look down in verse 45 where it says this. Look at that phrase, drive out. Do you see that? He went in the temple and began to drive out. That's the same language. uh, Now you already know the answer, don't you? It's the same language that's used when it speaks of Jesus driving out demons. What Luke wants us to understand is that what these people are doing is demonic. They're doing evil things, and they expect to have God's blessing when they go into the temple. Do we do that? Live like the devil during the week, come to church on Sunday, expect God to bless us? Mm -hmm. He may want to judge us. So that's very important that we understand that. So Luke wants us to see that this is demonic. Anytime someone is not doing what God wants them to do, they are being controlled by a different power rather than the Holy Spirit. So then look what happens in verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple so after he cleanses it cleanses it out he becomes he takes it over and he becomes the resident teacher right there in the temple and he stays in that temple for several days teaching now at night he goes back to Bethany we see that at the end of chapter 21 but during the day he takes over and he reclaims the temple as the center of God's revelation but look at what else it says in verse 47. The chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people, that's the Sanhedrin, sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything. For all the people were very attentive to hear him. So what we see is that Jesus again divides people. In this case, he divides the Sanhedrin, the leadership of the people, And the people. There's a cleavage between the people, the common people, and their leaders. Now, the people in this verse, verse 48, have a twofold purpose. First of all, they are the recipients of the teaching. They're the ones that are holding on to every word that Jesus teaches. But they're also the restrainers uh, against the power brokers who want to destroy Jesus. It says they would have killed him. In fact... Jesus would have been dead just like that if all the people weren't on Jesus' side. And so they restrained the evil, which is very interesting. So you see that power of the masses of people who do right. Now we come to chapter 20. Now it happened on one of those days. Look at that. On one of those days, could have been Tuesday or Wednesday of that week, we're not sure. As he taught, now watch what he does. Taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. Now notice he does two things. He teaches in verse 1 and he preaches in verse 1. Now what's the difference between teaching and preaching? Because there's a major difference. Teaching deals with ethical instruction. Teaching deals with ethics. Preaching deals with evangelism. Teaching tells God's people how to live on a daily basis. Preaching is a call to repent. Preaching always requires a response. Notice what he preached in verse 1. He preached what? The gospel. The good news. The good news of what? Well, what's Luke say? He preaches the gospel of the kingdom. That God's kingdom... (laughs) Is arriving. God is setting up a new society, a new system, which people would enter into. And he's doing away with the Judaism, uh, this Pharisaical Judaism. And so Jesus is preaching the kingdom, and he says, if you want to enter this kingdom, you need to repent. So he's preaching two messages into two groups of people, to God's people, ethics, and to people who need to be saved. He is doing evangelism. Now, what I want you to notice, it says that that he's interrupted here. I want you to notice that. Now, i want to read verse 1 again. It says, now, it happened on one of those days, probably Tuesday or Wednesday. Now, watch this next phrase. As he taught, while he was teaching and preaching the gospel, he's interrupted. That the chief priest and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him. And spoke to him saying, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? So while he's in there in the middle preaching or teaching, just like I am today, or just like the pastor is in the church right this hour, just imagine someone would come right up and right in the middle of the sermon, stand up in the sanctuary and say, hey, Dr. Jeffress. What right do you have to speak? Talk about those things to us. Just disrupt the whole service. And that's what the issue is. They're asking, the question is the question of authorization. Who's authorized you to do the speaking? What right do you have to speak to us? What right do you have to cleanse out this temple? Uh, Who ordained you? Uh, You're not a Levite. You're uh, You're not a priest in this temple. What right do you have to come? You're not, uh, you haven't been authorized by the Sanhedrin to do this talking. Who's given you the authority to speak? What right do you have? They just interrupt the whole thing. Now this is all designed to interrupt Jesus, get him off track, I'm convinced of that, to embarrass him in front of the people, to cast doubt upon his veracity, to embarrass him. So just to break in and then everybody sort of feels embarrassed. Well, maybe he doesn't have the authority to speak these things. And they're just trying to divide the people and Jesus at this point. Verse 3 says, But he answered, and he said to them, I will also ask you one thing. And answer me. Uh, The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? If they say John's authority came from heaven to baptize... Then their question is moot because John pointed to Jesus. And if John has authority from heaven he appoints Jesus and says, follow him, then that must mean Jesus has authority from heaven. So Jesus throws a wrench into their questioning. How about John? Was his authority from heaven or from men? Was he God-ordained or was he self-ordained? Okay? But look at verse 5. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe John? <laughs> John pointed to me. John said to repent. He didn't do any of those things. So we'd be in trouble if we say John's ordination is from heaven. But if we say from men, he self-ordained, all the people will stone us. For they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So we're in a dilemma. we were in the horns of a dilemma. So they answered that they did not know where John's authority came from. So uh, when Jesus asked the question, uh, they say, well, we're, we're just not so sure. And guess what? Suddenly they lose their authority. Suddenly they are the ones that don't have the answer. Suddenly Jesus embarrasses them in front of the people. So he turns the tables on the people. By the way, this issue of authority is going to be found throughout the next two chapters over and over again. It's the center of uh, the center issue here. Verse 8, Jesus said to them, Well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So I'm not going to answer your question. So he says, Now, let me pick up with point number three. And he starts preaching again. Now, at this point, Jesus launches into a parable. And uh, in a sense... This parable is going to really answer the question that the, uh, uh, the Pharisees, and not the Pharisees, but the Sanhedrin ask. And, uh, he, but he's going to do it in a very cryptic way. Okay, So let's just read verses uh, 9 through 13 there. <clears throat> then I'll show you several things. Uh, so Jesus then began to tell the people this parable, this story. A certain man planted a vineyard. He leased it to vine dressers. And he went to a far country for a long while. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. He wanted to get some of the profits. But the vine dressers beat the servant servant, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the owner sent another servant. They beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him and threw him out on the, his ear. And then the owner of the vineyard said, "What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. probably they will respect him when they see him. Now we don't want to overanalyze this parable, but you can see this parable also takes the form of an allegory.) An allegory simply means that each one of these persons or things represents a real person or thing. And it sort of becomes obvious. Uh, there's a man who plants a vineyard. Uh, that is, he represents God. Okay. The vineyard represents the people of God. We know that from Isaiah chapter 5, where that's uh, very clearly delineated. Uh we see vine dressers. He leases or rents or puts his vineyard. He puts over his vineyard someone to care for it. This represents the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders who have, who are leading the nation of Israel, who are leading the people of God. The servants they represent the prophets, and then the son cryptically represents Jesus. So what is happening here in this mini allegory, Jesus is giving an overview of salvation history or redemptive history. He's giving you a whole history of what God's done in the Old Testament with a (coughs) thumbnail sketch in symbolic language. God reached down and he takes one man, Abram, and he starts a new people. He plants a vineyard among the nations. He establishes a covenant with those people. He says, you're my people, now here's how I want you to act. And he goes into and establishes an agreement with the leaders of the people. The leadership breaks the covenant. God sends prophets. Get on the right track. He sends Jeremiah, he sends Isaiah, he sends the minor prophets. Get on the right track. And what do they do to the prophets? Kill the prophets. And finally he says, I'll send my son. He will speak on my behalf. Now guess what? If he sends the prophet, the prophet has the authority from God. He's authorized by God. That's who ordains him. If he sends his son, guess what? His son speaks for him. Thus, the son has the same authority as the father. He reveals the Father's will to these religious leaders, and they kill him. So what Jesus is basically doing, he is showing that he has the authority from God through the use of this parable or this allegory. Now look at verse 14. And when the vine dressers saw him, that was the son, they reasoned among themselves, saying, Oh, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. We'll run the thing the way we want to run it. So they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Notice, they feel they can break God's covenant, they can kill his prophets and, their, and his son, and get away with it. Now, what would cause a religious leader to think they could do that and get away with it? That has to be a very poor and a very weak understanding of who God is. It's almost like a deistic understanding of God. God is way up there. He's in the far country. He's way up there. We've seen that far country already, haven't we? He's way up there. And guess what? He's so far away, he can't do anything about it. We can sin with impunity. We can sin and run into the temple. It's our sanctuary. So they think that they can basically get away with it because God's far off. Now, look at the middle of verse 15. Jesus says in the parable, Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now, that's the bottom line. What's God going to do? He's going to come. His presence is going to be manifested. He's going to take the power brokers out of office. They will no longer be in charge of God's people, and he will replace them with other leaders. Now, in this parable, in this allegory, we see that if Jesus is the son, he's going to get killed. So this is Jesus, in a sense, predicting this before it happens. He's going gonna to die at the end of this week. And here, through parabolic form, he says the son will die. But guess what? It's going to look like the religious leaders have won. But they haven't won. Now, the pastor this morning talked about suffering, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Suffering for doing righteousness. And it looks like, boy, this isn't good. But that's not the last scene. <coughs> See? The last scene is that the religious leaders are going to be judged and the leadership is going to be turned over to someone else. They are going to lose their leadership. That's what's going to happen. Now look at the end of verse 16. Now it's in black letters, no longer red letters if you have a red letter edition. Here's what those religious leaders who were standing there listening to the parable said. When they heard it, they said... Some translations say, God forbid. Some translations say, certainly not. <clears throat> Text of translation would be, no way, Jose. You know, whatever. Something like that. It's not going to happen. We're never going to be replaced. <laughs> you can forget that. <laughs> We've got the Roman government behind us. Even the high priest in Jesus' day was appointed by the Roman government. You weren't high priest because the Roman government said you were high priest. You didn't collect the taxes for Rome from the Jewish people. They would replace you just like that. We're not going to be replaced. No way. This is nonsense. We're the leaders and we're going to keep our positions. But that's not how the story's going to end. Because Jesus then looked at them. He said, Oh, yeah? Well, let me tell you how the story to in. Okay, to watch. He looked at them and he said, What then is this? If that's the case, no way, Jose. <laughs> what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is Jesus' response. Now, again, notice he says, it is written. This is God's word. Here's the final word. Here's how it's going to end. He changes metaphors. Now we get into stone. You see that? First of all, Jesus in the parable is a son. Jesus is a son. Now, Jesus is a stone. The religious leaders in the parable were vine dressers. Now they are builders builders. Do you see that? The stone which the builders rejected. Okay? Now notice the stone that's rejected the stone which the builders rejected you see that? Verse 17 is the stone which is selected. The stone which is rejected is the stone which is selected. Rejected by men accepted by God And made the chief cornerstone of this new temple that God's built. The son, in the parable, who was killed is the son who was raised Mm -hmm. and is made the Lord of the universe. In each case, what you have is vindication. The stone is vindicated. What do you mean vindicated? Uh, it's rejected. Oh, this is not worth anything. Oh, yes it is. The stone which is rejected is vindicated because it is chosen for the premier spot in the temple that holds the whole temple together. The son that is rejected is vindicated because God raises him and exalts him and sits him in his right hand proclaims him to be Christ and Lord. Amen. So what we have here is Jesus telling this parable. Then he says this, he's still talking about the stone, verse 18, he says, Whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now again, Jesus is just quoting two, he's alluding to two passages in the Old Testament. The one passage is the stone upon which, this, whoever the stone falls upon will be ground to powder, is an allusion to Daniel chapter 2. Mm-hmm. Remember Daniel saw this great big monster of a statue that had a head and feet and bronze and gold and silver and all that? And it it represented the four world powers over time, including Rome. And then Daniel sees in his vision, he says, And then I saw a stone not made with hands. And it came down and it crushed the image. Of the beast, and it was ground to powder. Mm-hmm. That's what Jesus said. Uh, scripture basically says uh, you might reject this stone, but guess what? This stone is going to destroy you. It's going to destroy every kingdom. And then, of course, Daniel says, And then I saw a kingdom in which there was no end, and it was God's kingdom. <laughs> so that's the first illusion. The second illusion is to. Isaiah chapter 8. So I want you to turn over there, because if you fall upon the stone, you will be hurt. You will be hurt. You will be broken. So go over to Isaiah chapter 8. So we have two images of a stone. One, a stone that comes and falls on people, grinds into powder. Another one, a stone upon which they stumble and they become broken. It's the same stone. Same result, in a sense. And this is an allusion to chapter 8 of Isaiah and verse 13. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 13. The Lord of hosts, it says, him shall you hallow. Let him be your fear. Not man, not Rome. Let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary. But. A stone of stumbling. And a rock of offense. To both houses of Israel. As a trap and a a snare. To the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them. Shall stumble. They shall fall. And be broken. Be snared. And taken. So that's where it comes from. Now so you say, well, why did you turn to that one and not turn over and show us Daniel? Well, because I wanted to show you that's Isaiah chapter what? Eight. <laughs> What's Isaiah chapter seven? Virgin birth. Hmm. Isaiah chapter eight? The stone which is rejected upon which they stumbled. Chapter nine? And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Chapter eight? a stone. Chapter 9, a son upon whom the government rests. So Jesus, by quoting these verses or alluding to these verses back in uh. chapter 20, is basically saying, well, let me give you my answer. You say, no way, Jose. I say, yes, what? And here's what's going to happen. Let me show you how it's going to happen. And he quotes these two passages or alludes to these two passages which means that uh, you better be on the son's side, (laughs) otherwise you're going to be crushed. And then finally, look at verse 19. Verse 19. This is Luke chapter 20 and verse 19. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable Against them. So, what happens is they want to kill Jesus, but they can't. They want to lay hands on him. Basically means they want to arrest him. Probably put him on trial. They can't do it. They will do it later in the end of the week when Judas betrays Jesus, sells him for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, They'll get him in an isolated place where he only has three drowsy disciples with him, and uh, they will arrest him. But in doing so, In in arresting him, and in killing him, they will be fulfilling the parable. (laughs) They don't even realize they're falling right into God's hands. They are fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy about the leadership of Israel, and they're assuring their own destruction. And as a result, God will allow in 70 AD Jerusalem to be destroyed, Titus to come in, destroy the temple, scatter the Jews, destroy the city, and the Jews will be scattered without leadership. Now, I think this. Luke's writing this to a church. It's writing it to a person, but it's circulating and it's being read amongst Christians. If Luke's gospel was written after 70 A.D., we're not sure exactly when it was written. It could have been written 65 or 60. It could have been written 70, 75. If it was written 70 A.D., 72 A.D., then that means the temple's already been destroyed. He's writing about events that took place 30 years before. And uh, maybe many of the people of God are saying, well, why was the temple destroyed? And Luke says, well, let me tell you why the temple was destroyed. And he includes that parable of Jesus. Oh, why, are we, why, are, why aren't we following Jewish leaders anymore? Why are we following apostles? And he says, well, let me." He says, I'm going to include that in, the, in my gospel too because that will explain why the leadership has been changed why the leadership has been taken from one and given to another. See, this makes sense. If it was written right before the temple was destroyed, let's say in 60 AD, it's going to happen within 10 years. And they're going to say, uh, when it happens, oh, what caused this? And someone will say, oh, remember Luke included that in chapter 20. Of course, the chapters weren't put in at that time. Chapter number (laughs) But they had the gospel. And this would explain to them what was going to happen. And when it happened, they wouldn't be caught by surprise. So we see the victory. <clears throat> and that's what Luke wants us to see. Uh, everything that is happening before our eyes uh, is not the end of the story. And the end of the story really won't come until finally Christ comes back. And he vindicates all of his people who have been suffering for righteousness. People who've been condemned for doing the right thing and have suffered, like Joseph, who suffered for righteousness and were condemned. They too will be vindicated when God raises them from the dead and makes them leaders in his kingdom. We'll pick up uh, at verse 20 next week. Father, we thank you for your word. It's uh, so clear when you lay out your plan like this. And sometimes we allow our traditions to get in the way of understanding uh, a story like the cleansing of the temple and and what it really means and how Jesus builds on that event and explains uh, the history of salvation right before our eyes. So Lord, help us to read your word with understanding. Help us to realize that the New Testament is built on the Old and uh, this word is reliable, It's truthful, and we can stake our lives upon it for time and all eternity, in Jesus' name.